Welcome to Chatter. I'm David Priest, publisher of Lawfare. This week, author and Daily Beast reporter Kelly Weil on flat earth beliefs and conspiracism. Conspiracy theories in their way are comforting. They let people feel like they can at least understand events or that events are somehow being controlled. That's more comforting for some people to believe than that there is no one at the steering wheel. A lot of flat earthers find their way to the theory because of religion. If you look at when flat earth really blew up in England, this was coming at a moment when I think religion's dominance in society was being challenged. Flat earthers, they are routinely mocked even in death, and they're not doing these things to be crazy. They're doing them because they genuinely believe in those beliefs. Kelly, thank you for joining me on Chatter today. Thanks so much for having me. We're going to talk about conspiracies uh, and not necessarily the real ones like, you know, the killing of Julius Caesar or things like that, but the conspiracy theories and the things that show a lack of critical thinking and in some cases go pretty dark pretty quickly. This is an area that not everybody gravitates towards. How did you first become interested in investigating this this side of everything from the internet to political discourse to critical thinking, the whole idea of conspiracies and what they do to people? Well, I'm a longtime lurker in the weird parts of the internet. I mean, even as a teen, I was in weird forums, just kind of looking for the strangest thing that people were saying. That's just something on me. But as I became a journalist, I started to see how those strange tendencies, those weird claims actually have a a pretty decent hold on our politics. I became a beat writer covering the far right and extremism. And in covering that, I had to monitor a lot of forums online where people were making pretty ludicrous claims. Now, a lot of those claims were outright bigoted. You've got a lot of racists, a lot of sexists, but some of them also had their, their roots in really conspiratorial thinking. And one of those theories that I saw and I just could not get over was somebody actually on an extremist forum saying, I think the earth is flat. I think that the, you know, evil liberal government is uh, hiding the earth's true shape to uh, suppress your true potential. And I said, there is no way on earth this guy actually believes it. So unfortunately, as is my uh, want, I spent maybe five years digging into what he said. (laughs) No way on earth or next to earth or under earth. I don't, <laughs> I don't know what the right relational description is there. Uh, it's, it's funny because the whole, the whole flat earth thing we're going to get to in, in, in detail, but in terms of conspiratorial beliefs that intersect with American politics, that's actually not new, right? I, I remember, you know, talking to some historians of the early Republic and they talk about the Adams partisans having conspiracy theories about Jefferson, you know, sacrificing dogs on altars in Virginia and the Jefferson partisans saying that John Adams was a hermaphrodite and he was a secret monarchist. And that those kinds of thoughts have been there, but in terms of a movement about something that is something that can be uncovered through science. I mean, you can't really get through scientific thinking that Jefferson didn't sacrifice dogs on altars. But you can get through science and observation the fact that the Earth is is round. 
Um, that seems different. And of course, then it intersects with the internet and social media and other ways that, that things happen. But when you first were interested in conspiracies and all that, did, did you hearken back to any of those earlier conspiracies in American history that didn't have to do with flat earth beliefs? Yes, absolutely. And it's so interesting seeing these historical conspiracy theories, because I think that is a check against this narrative that we have right now that we live in a uniquely conspiratorial age. And I won't deny that conspiracy theories certainly have a lot of sway over politics right now. But conspiracy thinking is something that's very innately human. It's something we're all susceptible to a degree. And that really hasn't changed much over you know the past few hundred years. One of my favorite historical artifacts I found while going uh, through the research for this book was somebody sending, you know, pony mail to George Washington being like, I sent you a book on the Illuminati. Did you read it? Did you read it? And it reminds me of, you know, I it, I get emails as a journalist, people saying, hey, did you did you read the uh, the um, sample book I sent you, the galley? And George Washington finally being like, yeah, I skimmed it. Probably seems right. I don't know. <laughs> it's like. What a uh, what a relatable moment, right? That's the founder of the nation basically replying to those forward, forward, forward emails that your uncle sends, and um, just seeing that this was a this is a, a long lived dynamic in American history and throughout probably most of politics. I don't remember my first exposure to conspiracy thinking as such. I'm, I'm sure at some point when I was a kid, I heard about the the idea that the moon landings were fake, but I, I don't, I don't remember that happening. I do remember one that's actually personally painful. It was uh, my mother who recently passed away. I remember her at some point when I was a kid, and I don't know if it's kid like five years old or kids like 12 or 13, but she told me the story of the city of Chicago where she grew up and that it was a political machine and that she remembers from when she was a kid that the election, it must've been in 1960 between John Kennedy and Richard Nixon, that it was just rampant corruption in the city, that votes were created for John Kennedy. And, you know, John Kennedy, the daily machine, Mayor Daly in Chicago, ensured that Kennedy would become president. And Illinois, sure enough, was a deciding factor and the vote was very, very close. And she was just livid about this. And I don't think it had to do with politics. I don't think it was a Democrat Republican thing as much as it was the the machine, the system telling people how to vote, dead people voting, whatever the issues were. Um, the conspiracy part of it though, was she would say connected to this. And I, in my memory, she would say it as this is what people are saying. It was never that she believed it, but she said it often enough that I wondered that, you know, the antichrist is supposed to come in the form of someone that people trust and look up to. And, you know, the way that John F. Kennedy got into office, isn't it amazing that he was young and charismatic and everybody gravitated towards him? That's what they say about the Antichrist. I thought, why? even then I remember thinking, wow, th that escalated quickly. Um, <laughs> you know, from, from, from some upset about voting irregularities to the literal Antichrist on earth. So yeah, it has affected us long before the modern era of flat earth and everything. Um, but it does show there's almost this recessive gene in humanity that we want to explain big events. And often it's easier to do that by pointing to forces, exerting their will beyond our control. And 
that somehow gives solace to people to explain com- complicated things. Do you find that? Absolutely. You know, as I was doing, frankly, some scientific research for this book, uh, pulling sociology studies about when and why people are most inclined to conspiracy beliefs, there are a few motivating factors, but I think what unifies them all is that conspiracy theories in their way are comforting. They let people feel like they're in control of events or that they can at least understand events or even perversely that they're not in control of events at all, but that events are somehow being controlled. I think that's uh, more comforting for some people to believe than that events are often random, that there is no one at the steering wheel and that, you know, sometimes we are sort of at the mercy of small coincidences. Uh, you know, the vo- the voting fraud stories are so funny because we see them now. You're talking about uh, those conspiracy theories in the 60s. And I write in the book about a uh, flat earth, uh, frankly, a kind of a cult in um, the uh, early 20th century. They uh, tried ousting the leader and he said, uh, they've, they've imported liberal voters from Chicago to overthrow me. This is fake. And, you know, it's uh, you, you go through this enough and you start to hear certain echoes, certain themes. And I think those themes are so resident and they're so uh, repeatable because they do speak to certain needs that people have. You know, mm-hmm. you lose an election that uh, and losing can very much uh, destabilize people's faith in their understanding of the world, faith in how things work. Um, You lose an election that you thought you understood. Well, rather than challenge that maybe your understanding wasn't correct, you challenge the circumstances under which the election was conducted. Right. You made a reference to your book there, and I don't want to leave that hanging. You're mentioning Off the Edge, Flat Earthers, Conspiracy Culture, and Why People Will Believe Anything. Um, which has been out for a while, but a new paperback uh, is, is coming out. The paperback edition is coming out. And a lot of the things we'll talk about do relate to your your writing in the book. But before we get to Flat Earth, um, the whole idea we're talking about here, conspiracy theory. What do you mean when you talk about a conspiracy theory? Because we can all fall prey to defining something in a in a derogatory way. And just labeling something I don't like as a conspiracy theory, as a way of dismissing it and calling it kooky, that's not really objective. So what do you mean when you say conspiracy theory? Absolutely. I'm glad you bring that up because I mean something quite specific. And I think there has been a lot of definitional drift over the past couple of years as people become very aware of conspiracy theories' roles in the discourse. When I talk about a conspiracy theory, I mean a deliberate and malicious plot that is ongoing to cover up events. So what is not a conspiracy theory? Uh, If your friends get together and say, hey, we're going to throw David a birthday party, surprise party, don't tell him though. That's not a conspiracy. You know, there's no malice involved in that. And I also do want to flag that just because something is called a conspiracy theory, theory implying that it's unproven, doesn't necessarily mean that conspiracies don't happen. I mean, they do, right? Iran-Contra, that was a conspiracy. And for quite a while, it was a conspiracy theory because details of it had not emerged. So when I'm talking about conspiracy theory, you know, this is uh, an explicitly malicious plot. And again, doesn't necessarily mean that there are no such malicious plots. But Um, The ones that I get into in the book are the more far-fetched ones that are being used as an explanation uh, 
almost to obfuscate the real events. Um, it, it's something that is uh, more like a coping mechanism than it is an actual explanation of what's going on in the world. And I'm, I, I don't know your age and I don't need to know, but I think I'm s- safe to say that the the moon landing happened before we were born. That's not in our lifetimes. Um, but probably the biggest conspiracy theory that had both the biggest impact over the 10 years or so afterwards, but also was a gateway drug for a lot of other conspiracy theories after was the 9-11 trutherism, uh, something which I take personally. I was I was working in the intelligence community on 9-11, and uh, it, it, was a, it was a rough day, and denying that people died that day, which is one branch of it, or that it actually was an inside government job. Uh, both of those are so insulting in so many ways that that it emotionally gets to me. But it is instructive to study it because it's it's one version of a conspiracy theory where it is, how could something so big happen from a cause that's so small? How could thousands of people die and the course of the US government and international relations and everything else change because of you know, a couple of dozen people with box cutters. Um, I get that. I get that people are looking to explain either a specific anomaly or looking to explain the out of sequence events that appear there. Kind of like how could John Kennedy, if you don't think he's the Antichrist, how could John Kennedy, this young, charismatic, vibrant president, be killed by one loser with a gun from a warehouse? Uh, how big was 9-11 trutherism as you were doing research here as kind of the, the formative experience for a lot of other conspiracy thinking that we have seen in the 20 plus years since? Uh, in a word, massive. I think 9-11, it really resonates with a lot of American conspiracy theorists because it was such a traumatic event in the nation's history. Uh, it, it's something that Many people have their own personal ties to. Certainly the aftermath of it shook up American politics, shook up our way of life. And it's something that, you know, does, uh, I think, resonate a lot with the American psyche. So it's something that is easy for people to get quite emotional about. I think 9-11 is also a very uh, good entry point into conspiracy theories because a lot of the conspiracy theories around it are not necessarily partisan. We talk right now about a lot of, say, pro-Trump conspiracy theories, but 9-11 actually had a reasonable amount of uh, left-wing conspiracy theorizing, too. So it's able to reach a fairly wide political audience. And when I was talking to a lot of flat earthers, and again, we'll get more into this topic, a lot of them said that 9-11 was their gateway drug, that they had been looking for information about that day. It's it's an incredibly popular thing to read up on. It's something that still most people do remember. Um, and that they were quite quickly funneled into alternate theories about the day, alternate narratives, and that uh, once they got onto that train of thinking, then whole new conspiracy worlds opened up for them. So, you know, just the the, the scale of that event and also the, um, I would say the range of partisan conspiracy theories make it a really good gateway, a good entry point for people who are maybe about to begin a conspiracy journey. Let's, let's get to flat earth ideas. Uh, so contrary to a lot of popular belief, 
Uh, there was not some grand discovery in 1492 that the the world was, in fact, round. Um, going back to what the ancient Greeks, at least, people could calculate just based on sun, shadow, time of day that, yes, it was a sphere. And some of them actually calculated the size of the Earth fairly well, given uh, the limited collection they had at the time. Um, so it wasn't this idea that it's only a modern idea that the Earth is 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 round. And yet we didn't really, I don't think history shows us a lot of history about what the average person believed about what the earth was, right? Because we just don't know for thousands of years ago, did people really believe it? Or was it just some Greek mathematicians who were smart? You've traced a lot of the modern flat earth movement to England in the 1800s, I think it is. Um, how did it? How did it really start? And to the extent that you could figure it out, what was the real spur that led to a no kidding flat earther movement? Right. So this is really interesting. And I'm glad you point this out because there is, I think, a sort of retconning of history, this idea that in the Middle Ages, everybody thought we lived in a flat earth. That's not true for a lot of the reasons that you bring up. You know, mathematicians not working with any fancy gear, but, you know, put a stick in the ground, calculate the how the shadows move. It's quite easy for people to prove that we live in a globe. Now, did that, did references to the globe show up all the time in medieval texts? Not really, because if you're a farmer, it's kind of irrelevant to you. You know, you're working on five acres. What's, what's the curvature of the earth going to cost you? However, Flat Earth really cuts back in and starting around the 1840s after the idea of the globe is very much a, an established fact is something that's taught in schools that everybody understands to be true. In the 1840s, we have uh, someone who I think would be a very recognizable conspiracy figure if you plopped him down in the 21st century. His name is Samuel Robotham, and he, he comes from a colorful background. He tried to be kind of a... Um, an agrarian uh, communist leader for a little bit in this uh, fun little compound um, that failed. He tried selling some uh, some faux medicines, sort of like a Dr. Pepper that he said would grant immortality. He has a lot of false starts. Where he finally got his foothold, though, was, if you recall, I said he worked on this uh, compound. It was next to a very long flat canal, and he claimed that if you waded out into the canal and you looked across the horizon, you would see the horizon goes out much further than it should rightfully be visible on a globe. Now, people have conducted his experiments again and again. He's wrong. I mean, it's his measurements are either botched or lies. But he thought he was right. Well, you know, there is some... It's interesting. Did he think he was right or did he realize he'd struck gold with this? Because mm. he started making quite a bit of money ah. pushing this. Conspiracy. You don't have to believe it if it's lucrative. Absolutely. So, you know, at this point, this was, uh, you know, more than 100 years ago. I can't interview the fellow, but it's, uh, it is an open question, I think, the extent of his belief. What's not an open question, though, is once he started pushing flat Earth theory, and there have been variations on the theory, but broadly it says that Earth is flat, it's a disk, it might be surrounded by something like an ice wall. Um, once he started promoting this theory in pamphlets and on a lecture circuit, he started converting hardcore believers, people who would really go to, I would say, the ends of the Earth, but that's a very, uh, a very different term in flat Earth belief, to defend his theories. Uh, some of his fans got in quite a lot of legal trouble, financial trouble. 
following this guy and promoting his thoughts. So, you know, did Samuel Robotham believe the earth was flat? It almost doesn't matter. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, just as a human being, I, I want to get to people's motivations and understand, are are they a true believer? And 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 actually, it's it's a matter of them being genuine? Or do they know that this is bullshit and they're just, you know, trying to pull one over on us? I guess it doesn't matter to the extent that it is spreading the idea and if other people believe it. But I still think that it obviously changes the strategy that you use to try to debunk it at some level. Absolutely. You know, so we're talking uh, uh, early February. So the Southern Poverty Law Center just mm-hmm. published this huge trove of uh, Alex Jones, the Infowar founders, text messages, really diving through, doing a terrific job, pulling apart where he's he's full of it, right? You know, he's someone who goes on air and says that pornography is meant to bring down Western civilization, and he's sending porn links to his colleagues. I mean, it's just, it's, mm. it's very colorful. Um, and so, you know, does Alex Jones believe the theories he promotes on air? Well, I mean, maybe maybe he really does, but he's one man and what his influence is, is this empire of lies. He's, you know, just he's he's poisoned, I think, a lot of discourse, a lot of people's conception of the world. And so, you know, yeah. may, maybe he really is full of it. But at this point, I don't even think the knowledge that he is a hypocrite can really um, snap a lot of people out of the theories that he's promoted. Mm-hmm. So... For these early English flat earthers, the the thing, whether they were true believers or not, and some of them clearly were, the, the fact is it was demonstrably false because just with normal senses, not with advanced technology and satellites and space travel, but there are some simple ways. I mean, you can look at a boat on the horizon and you can see that the top of the mast is visible longer than, and you can see the top of the mast pretty clearly with the right conditions, but you can see the boat disappearing, which doesn't make sense with a flat earth model. Or certainly by the 1800s, you had plenty of reports of people going to the Southern hemisphere, what we call the Southern hemisphere, and seeing different stars and different patterns in the skies, which is still something that's unexplainable without some immense twistings and uh, even farther hyper-reality with a flat earth model. It just doesn't make sense. Um, You can just watch the sun move above or below the curve of the horizon. And yet you had people who were rejecting those fundamental things. Was it linked to religious belief? Because I I think a lot of flat eartherism seems to be linked to some biblical fundamentalism. I'm not sure it inherently has to be, but it does seem to be connected somehow. You're right that both, it doesn't need to be, but it often is. A lot of flat earthers find their way to the theory because of religion. Uh, And a lot of that is because if you look at when flat earth really blew up in England, um, you know, mid late 1800s, this was coming at a moment when I think religion's dominance in society was being challenged. Uh, theories of natural sciences, evolution, that was really taking the forefront and religious explanations of the world were taking a backstage. And so I think for a lot of people who, uh, you know, based their understanding of the world in more religious explanations, they wanted a theory that could sort of say, 
Don't worry about science. They don't know what they're talking about. Don't worry about science. They don't even have the shape of the planet correct. So I think that's one reason that flat earth is very appealing to very um, religious fundamentalists or religious literalists. Um, that's interesting because that means that it's it's instrumentalist, that perhaps some people from a fundamentalist religious point of view, they find some aspects of science so difficult for their belief system, but they can't take those on directly. So they'll find a way to discredit science in a different way. In this case, we can't prove the earth is round. So why should we believe anything about science? Avoiding the the harder conversation about some particular aspect of evolution or something else. It, it's almost like the flat earth is is as a wedge that they're trying to use rather than a, a true core belief in that in and of itself. Absolutely. I mean, flat earth theory is really a jackhammer for science, right? It, 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 it lets you just level it all. It says you can just discard all this. The basic tenets of science are not there. Forget about it. Um, you know, you can actually see very interesting uh, ways that was implemented in England in the 1800s. Uh, there were early flat earthers who in trying to poke holes in science, they were looking at uh, early astronomers' estimates of how far the Earth was from the sun. They said, well, Copernicus said this, and Newton said this, and if science were real, well, then how do you explain these contradictions? Well, the answer is that these are very different men working in different centuries, and that you know, scientific hypothesis welcomes revision and uh, new new discoveries, but that wasn't enough. The, the fact that the scientific method is malleable, is welcoming of um, of experimentation was enough to discredit it. And so, yes, I think flat earth is um, often does work sort of as a tool, as a, a way to open up people's minds for other conspiracy theories, other beliefs that they previously held and want to justify. So I'll, I'll fast forward a bit and bring it closer to home, at least closer to where I was born, which is outside Chicago. I, I do remember hearing when I was a kid that the the suburb of Zion had a religious background to it. And that's all I remember is that there was some somewhere in its past that it had some special status and there was something unique historically about it, but I didn't know what it was until you educated me on it, which is that uh, Zion was actually the center of a, I don't know what to call it, a, a flat earth dictatorship. I mean, it, that's not too far off, but certainly a, a a center of flat earth belief and a governance structure built around that. Talk through that a little bit. What happened in Zion and why? So I loved researching this chapter. And I also have to give a shout out to the historians in Zion, Illinois, no more a, uh, a religious fundamentalist group, very kind people, big help to the book. But the town of Zion, Illinois was founded really from nothing by a quite religious group. The founder wasn't actually a flat earther. He was a kind of a, a prophet, a faith healer uh, named John Doey. One of John Doey's uh, disciples was a man named Wilbur Glenvalaba, and he effectively overthrew Doey. A lot of uh, you know internal church schemings and plots, conspiracies in their own right. Um, but after establishing power, Valaba got very, very into flat Earth for biblical literalist reasons. He would cherry pick the Bible and say that, well, if you see this reference to a circle, that must actually mean that you know Earth is flat. And he had, he 
really came out with his own scriptures in this respect. Now, Volvo was not a uh, a, a liberal, a, a, a small-D Democrat. He called himself a theocrat, and he very much was one. He ruled with an iron fist. He had a very, uh, very grim kind of uh, setting around him. He banned anything fun, you know, driving more than five miles an hour, wearing anything but very conservative clothing, dancing, chewing gum. I don't and like this place. It was, yeah... <laughs> You read these old magazine articles, uh, you know, uh, someone would send a gonzo journalist in to walk around the town. And it sounds like something from, you know, (laughs) Cormac McCarthy's The Road. Really, really grim place. But one governing principle was you had to be a flat earther. He uh, when Illinois Board of Education stepped in and said, you can't teach this stuff in schools. He says, no problem. I'll just dissolve the schools. And he did that. Started a private uh institution where pretty much all the uh, the city's school ch- children went. They learned the earth was flat there. And he ruled like this for a couple, uh, couple decades. It was really the only, to my knowledge, only instance of a functioning flat earth dictatorship. And it's a bizarre little chapter in Illinois history. Well, I have to say, uh, Illinois did bring forward some of the best of America with Abraham Lincoln and, and others. Um, but that story is just, I mean, I don't call a lot of things batshit crazy, but it's just amazing to, to realize how that happened and how it, how it continued. The intersection of power dynamics with the, like you said, the biblical literalism really made for a fascinating mix there. So moving forward, um, basically it seems like flat earthism kind of went away for a little while, but as you said, there's been some retconning going on in the other direction. Um, I was surprised to learn that there are some pretty strong flat earther beliefs about the United Nations and what was supposed to happen in 1945, but what didn't happen. Again, I'm not sure contemporaneously there was that much going on, but reflecting back on it, they've tried to read a lot into something that best as I can tell really is founded almost entirely on the UN logo and not much else. Talk through that. What's what's the relation of the United Nations supposedly and a flat earth? So if you can visualize the United Nations logo, it's a map of the world, but from a slightly different perspective, sort of a top-down perspective. That is, you know, that's not an inaccurate map of the world. It's just an uncommon one that's looking from a different vantage point. However, A map that looks sort of like that has become very popular in flat earth circles. So I mentioned earlier, but the kind of prevailing flat earth theory now is that earth is like a pancake and Antarctica is a ice wall, a a rim that goes around the outside of the world. That's how they manage to, you know, project a, a globe onto a disc, basically. That looks a bit like the UN logo. And a lot of contemporary flat earthers have looked at that picture and said, aha, the world's elites know it to be true. There it is. And, you know, there has always been a lot of um, conspiracy hype around the United Nations. A lot of conspiracy theorists are very fixated on ideas about the new world order, about, you know, global, well, not in this case, not global elites, but world elites, you know, convening to control all of us. And so the United Nations is a pretty decent uh, stand in for those folks. And the idea that they're uh, they're big great enemy does actually acknowledge the truth of flat earth. I think that is a very powerful idea for flat earthers. So they do often cling to that notion that 
UN is secretly a flat earth uh, institution. So if if that was the case, that the, the founders of the United Nations knew that the earth was flat and were willing to basically give the game away by designing this logo, regardless of the fact that I don't think Churchill and Roosevelt and what Stalin and Chiang Kai-shek, I don't think they designed the logo, but put that aside, that they were willing to design this logo and tell the whole world that the, the earth was flat. What, what happened? Like why, why did it, why did it fall apart and, and who stopped this from happening the way that they intended? You know, it was a little muddled to begin with. A lot of these theories come from a, a a uh, fellow named Charles Johnson. He was a flat earth pamphleteer and sort of the doldrums of the flat earth movement. He was one of the only guys writing. He was not a an especially uh, cutting, incisive writer. His theories are a little muddled. So he did yeah. have these theories that, you know, um, the U.S. and the U.K. and the Vatican were all going to merge into one super country. It didn't happen. It got blocked. So no. it, it's not entirely clear to me, at least, you know, a year out trying to reflect on exactly what he said, um, what the UN's role in um, in Flat Earth was meant to be. Well, clearly, FDR died right around that time, right? Before the UN could really get going. So, you know, clearly, you know, the system was out to get him, to prevent him from doing it. <laughs> I don't know. You, you almost have to make some things up because you're right. Based on everything I've seen, it is muddled. There is no clear answer. To this and exactly how it happened. Uh, you mentioned the the ring around the Earth, the Antarctic ice cliff that's around. Uh, that that's as good a time as any then to talk about if the Earth is not a sphere or close to a sphere. Um, what is it? And it seems to me there are some commonalities and some differences between different. I don't know what you call them. Different flavors. Different branches. Uh, different denominations of flat eartherism. Um, the thing most in common is that the earth is is flat or very close to it. It is not a sphere. Got it. But when it comes to what is above this flat earth, what is under this flat earth, what is around the land masses and oceans that we know, and whether this whole thing is moving or not, we have a lot of differences there don't we? So, so let's go from, I, I hate to say top, but let's, let's go from the above the earth downward. What, what do many flat earthers believe we look at when we look up in the sky and what differences are there between their beliefs? Sure. So this is really interesting to me, the way that even though they have a, uh, a shared theory, there aren't many flat earthers, so you wouldn't think they'd be mincing differences. There actually are different branches of flat earth, and they vary according, I think, to people's uh, uh, needs and their beliefs. Maybe the most common current flat earth belief is that earth is flat, it's surrounded by that ring of ice, and that it's uh, covered by a dome, like a snow globe. And a lot of proponents of this theory believe that that's it in the universe. What's outside the dome? Well, nothing. This is it. This is a very biblically literalist uh, perspective. It resonates very well with people who don't want to have to grapple with the idea even of outer space because they think that this is all of creation. They get kind of touchy when you ask what's underneath Earth. Again, it's nothing, but how far down does Earth go? Well, you don't know that. Stop. Stop being annoying. Um, I've been through this, these conversations. Um but that is a very common one. And um, but there have been variants. 
uh, a founder of what's now the Flat Earth Society, believed that there were uh, sort of like different levels above Earth and that those may have represented the heavens. And one sort of ascendant theory that I'm coming into right now, it has more to do with the ice wall around uh, around the perimeter of Earth. People talking about what might be beyond that wall. And I think this really speaks for a lot of people to a need for there to be more, there to be some fantasy land, some utopia just outside of what seems like a very constrained planet, a very constrained Mm. universe. I've spoken to people who claim that there are maybe not aliens, but other life forms, maybe more advanced life forms beyond the wall. I Mm. saw somebody running a bogus fundraiser claiming that the wall is made out of pure energy. It's infinitely restorable. It can cure all your ailments. So it's... um. These these theories do kind of fluctuate, I think, in response to the needs that people want them to serve. That's fascinating, right? That, you know, even if you agree that the earth is flat, and even if you agree that it is uh, a dome, and even if you agree that everything we see in the sky is somehow in or projected on this dome, you can still disagree even there right? It's like an obscure schism within the Baptist church or something, because some people will say, you know, the dome and all of this was created by God because that's the way it's described in the Bible, the way we read it. Others have said, no, the dome was put there by, I don't know, the government or by some evil cabal to keep people away from God because they don't want us seeing God. Yes. That was the argument of a, uh, a pharmacist who during COVID, uh, took a whole bunch of early COVID vaccines out of a fridge to destroy them. And it, I don't think this motivated necessarily his destruction of those vaccines, but he was a proponent of the theory that the dome was there to block people from God. So you are, wow. that's some niche knowledge. <laughs> yeah, that's incredible. I mean, and then about this ring around the earth, the idea being that I don't think most flat earthers deny there is Antarctica, um, that there is some land down what we call South or in the the polar South, the explanations for it get weird. One is that, yeah, there's, there's some land and then quickly there's an ice, a ring that's all mountains, which I should note, no Antarctic explorers have, have found a massive wall of ice that goes on, you know, infinitely, at least from their point of view in a very long curve that they would have to see. So objectively not, not so much. Um, but whether that's the end and there's something beyond it um, that goes off into infinity, that it's it's unprovable, right? Science can't help you if you can't go and see what's there, despite the charlatans who occasionally will try to run cruises and trips to, to take people there. Um, under the earth gets interesting because some people have tried to explain gravity in a flat earth model. And that's that's really hard, right? How could you have gravity in in a domed flat earth they said well clearly it's just moving upward at such a rate that it it seems like there's gravity but it's really things being pushed down to the ground because of this movement upward um and that doesn't really hold up the more you explore it but at least they're trying other people don't try at all they just say well that's just the way god built it At least they are trying. And this actually kicks at one of the biggest schisms within flat earth. The, uh, the argument that you were just talking about that gravity has to do with the movement of the world 
upward. They call that, I believe, it's something like infinite acceleration theory. The idea that uh, the Gs that we feel are not due to our being drawn toward the center of the planet, they're due to acceleration, just like if somebody you know slammed down the gas in a car, you'd be pushed to the back. Um, that model is promoted by the Flat Earth Society, which I is not actually a huge player in Flat Earth right now. They're kind of... Um, They've, they've passed their peak. They're kind of on the outs with a lot of flat earthers. Um, but they are big advocates of the acceleration theory. Now, a lot of, uh, I would say, more, more kingmakers in the flat earth space right now are not fans of that theory because if earth is accelerating upward, it must be accelerating upward through space. And the current leaders of flat earth theory don't believe that there is outer space. Again, they believe that everything is within this dome. So for Earth to be accelerating, it implies something that they don't think is theologically possible. Their explanation is that uh, it's one of buoyancy. They say that you are denser than air, and that's the reason you don't float up in the air. Now, that's not true. Um, but that's you know that's where they get into it. And in fact, one of the um, most irate comments I've read on, in the reviews of my books is someone saying that I was uh, miscasting most flat earthers and saying that they believed in ex- acceleration theory, and that's not true. So uh, you know, that that is something that they become quite piqued about. You were picking sides and you didn't even know it. That's amazing. Clearly. <laughs> um, tell me about your exploration of this uh, and its connection, the growth of flat eartherism. And we'll get to some of the the, the characters in particular, um, people in some cases that you've gotten to know by going to flat earth conferences. Um, but when you started exploring on YouTube and looking at algorithms and how they push people toward conspiracy content and flat earth content in particular, at least before some recent reforms. Um, Who was Beth and what did she discover about online radicalism? So Beth is my middle name and it's the name that I slap on the fake accounts that I use uh, when I'm, you know, trying to get a sense of what Facebook or YouTube is showing people who don't have my previous YouTube history. It's sort of a blank slate. What I found using these Beth accounts is that um, you can show a very faint, very moderate interest in conspiracy theories and quite quickly be channeled into uh, quite deep and dark conspiracy content. One uh, one venue I found is that on YouTube, if you're watching moderately conspiratorial content, uh, I, I'm, I'm a little reluctant to characterize it as this because it, I we did discuss that it's quite damaging, but 9-11 trutherism, which again, very conspiratorial, but it's a, a lot more mainstream. If you're watching something like 9-11 Truth, at least early on in my investigations, you would quite quickly be channeled into conspiracy recommendations. The sidebar next year uh, video would say, do you want to, you know, check out five prophecies that shows that Trump is, you know, the anointed one? Do you want to check out these alternate earth shapes? And this isn't just me talking. This is the, uh, this is the testimony that virtually every flat earther I've spoken to has given me. A couple have found flat earth from friends or from, you know, um, uh, literalist Bible readings, but most have found it via YouTube, via recommendations. And I found a similar pattern on Facebook. I would join a, you know, a conspiracy-like group, something, sometimes even like something uh, alternate health related, and it would very soon recommend, you know, you might be interested in this other group. So um, 
overall, I think social media algorithms, to the extent that they existed maybe 2018, 2019, when I was doing quite a lot of research for this book, they prioritize the content that is most scintillating. That's weird. The stuff that, frankly, you're going to click on. I click on crazy stuff on YouTube because I'm curious, and I think that's a very human response. So mm-hmm. they these algorithms do promote, frankly, the weird stuff. And unfortunately, the weird stuff is very often incorrect. Mm-hmm. It's also a very human thing to want to get together in person with people who share similar beliefs, especially fringe beliefs, and and build a sense of community and bond in person. What is a Flat Earth conference actually like to attend? So strange. Uh, (laughs) I went to my first Flat Earth conference in uh, late 2018. I've been following the movement online for ages, so I thought I could kind of talk the talk, you know, stay in there and have a pretty even footing, not be thrown off. Even having spent a lot of time online in flat earth circles, I actually found it quite destabilizing. It's very, very weird to be in a room of 600 flat earthers and know that you're one of the only people who shares this very fundamental understanding of what earth is, where we are. And in some respects, it actually does help me appreciate why these meetups are so necessary for flat earthers. Most of their days, they feel quite isolated in their beliefs. They know that to you know come out as a flat earther, as they say, is often results in mockery. They know that most people don't agree with them on these very fundamental facts. So when they go to a flat earth conference, it's tremendously validating. They have their friends that they've made online, or they make new friends. They have this uh, this very specific shared thing with people. And it's it's a very, I think, overwhelming and emotional experience for them. But frankly, you know, just as a reporter there and just walking around, everyone's singing flat earth songs, everyone's handing you pamphlets. It's um, it's a trip. Yeah. I, my only, I've not attended these, um, although I've done a little bit of uh, writing in the skepticism community and um, specifically on conspiracy theories. So I'm aware of the mentality, but not having been, my window into it is is primarily through two things. One, through reporting like yours. And secondly, from that Netflix documentary, uh, Behind the Curve, if I'm getting the name right. And the window that, that two things I remember from that the most, from a couple, at least a couple of years ago now. One is the merchandise that like many conferences, uh, it's a chance to make money. And there are some people who have actually developed some rather nice artwork and models of the flat earth, ironically, three dimension models uh, that can hang on a wall or go on your desk that show the ice cliff around the world or the dome, things like that. And the second thing was the person of, if I get his name right, Mark Sargent, I think I have that right. Um, Talk about uh, both of those in turn. First of all, what what you found uh, from that merchandising angle and whether that was, in a sense, convincing anybody to to have the, 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 the tactile experience of these models, and then about the role of Mark Sargent in particular within the Flat Earth movement. 
Sure. Well, I mean, I think both of these speak to how Flat Earth has moved from just an idea to a real community, a real monetizable industry with micro celebrities and swag. So you go to a Flat Earth conference and a lot of the times one of the first things you're going to see are the merch tables. And just, you know, imagine you're, I don't know, outside a concert or something, just rows and rows of t-shirts with you know, slogans, uh, bagging on NASA. You can buy books, you can buy necklaces, you can buy knives. I, I accidentally made an enemy of someone who sold knives with flat earth stuff on them, which is not a good enemy to make. Um, but that all this is to say, there's a lot of potential money in flat earth. Um, and, you know, I think having those tangible items is a nice, uh, reassuring element for some people who's, beliefs were, you know, they're, they're tied to some YouTube videos they've watched or some conversations they've had on Facebook. When you can go and you can buy, granted a self-published book, but a book none, nonetheless, a you know, physical paper item, well, that's pretty neat. There's someone who agrees with you enough to have sat down and written 600 pages on this theory. And, you know, I, again, I do really think that it makes it real for a lot of people. Now, your question about Mark Sargent, he is um, one of the biggest names in Flat Earth YouTube. He uh, he makes, I think, very effective Flat Earth videos. They're you know about 20 minutes long. He calls them Flat Earth Clues. They're very digestible little hits. And you can watch one and say, oh, that is interesting. I've never personally done this experiment, you know, watching the horizon. But Mark has, and maybe he's right. I have met a lot of people who've personally told me they're like, Mark's videos are what did it for me. Um, people describing them almost like a Netflix binge. You know, they sit down and they just have to watch the next one. They send it to their friends. Again, the digestibility, I think, he he really understands that function very well. So he is someone who, you know, has been uh, at multiple Flat Earth conferences and people go nuts for the chance to meet the guy who changed their thinking, who is sort of like a celebrity, you know. If you're talking to like, I don't know, Gen Zers or something, they want to go see Mr. Beast. Well, Flat yeah. Earthers, they want to go see Mark, Mark Sargent. The Flat Earthers would would kill for the subscriber count of Mr. Beast, but they got close, right? Didn't Logan Paul? And there, by the way, there's many people who have no idea what we're talking about now, but I have a preteen son and Logan Paul and Mr. Beast, you know, he knows instantly and much better than people we would normally have called celebrities. Um, but what what happened with Logan Paul at one of the Flat Earth conferences? So Logan Paul, so for for folks blissfully unaware, huge YouTube celebrity. He's had a lot of controversies. In 2018, he filmed a suicide victim in a forest in Japan. And it was not long after that controversy that I ran into him at a Flat Earth conference. Um, this was the first one I went to, that one in 2018. And um he, you know, you're walking around among flat earthers, many of whom I should say are YouTubers in their own respect. This is how a lot of them interact with the theory. They uh, watch YouTube, then they say, okay, I think I got this. And they make their own videos about it. So YouTube is kind of the language of flat earth in many cases. And suddenly there's this huge commotion and Logan Paul's outside. And it, it was this weird sensation for me because I recognize him from things like, you know, filming a suicide victim. So it was a bit of a disconnect. Well, why is Logan Paul here? Well, Logan Paul was at the Flat Earth Conference to pretend to be a flat earther and to make a mockumentary about his experience. Hmm. Um, 
conspiracy theorists claim to be skeptical um, and to, you know, see through other people's schemes toward them. And it was so aggravating to me to be there and to see flat earthers falling for this guy who clearly was not a flat earther, who was clearly there to make fun of them. They believed to, what they like, wanted to believe. Absolutely. And there yeah. was this moment, right? He goes up on stage. He's going to be the keynote address. And the MC introduced him saying he's got this many million followers on YouTube and people were rapturous. It was, you know, he, he was at the time, I think, sort of the king of YouTube. And he was maybe a sign that Flat Earth could make it on that level. And of course, he puts out his documentary later, making fun of them all. MC looks like an idiot. Everyone is mad at him. So it was a real, you know, kind of stab in the back for Flat Earthers. But I said, you know, guys, you can't be this gullible. And unfortunately, <laughs> that they were. But here's the funny thing, Kelly, is it actually boosted attention to Flat Earth because, you know, under the the maxim that any publicity is good publicity, even if it's bad, you had a lot of people who knew Logan Paul and followed him despite the controversy, or in some cases because of it, who suddenly were exposed to flat eartherism. And yes, many people were in on the joke and got that this this was him making fun of it. But when you've got millions of subscribers, it, it takes a very small percentage of that to actually say, huh, I... I didn't know there was such a thing as a flat earth conference. Let me click on this video. And suddenly they're watching Mark Sargent and suddenly they're actually considering these ideas instead of mocking them, which may have been the original intent of that video. Absolutely. I actually do want to say something in Mark Sargent's defense. He pulled out from the conference when he saw Logan Paul was there, only person who saw through it. But right. um, you are right to point out that that funnel, right? Most people are going to make fun of Flat Earth, but when you have such a wide net, some people are, are going to move toward Flat Earth. And, you know, I think evidence of this is sort of in Gen Z viewing patterns, right? Often at Flat Earth conferences, the... Um, Maybe the main demographic is a bit older, I would say 40s, 50s, even 60s. So it's easy to go to a flat earth conference and see Logan Paul as an anomaly, the the one young guy who's there. But now these days, if you go onto TikTok, which is more of a thing than it was in 2018, there are young flat earthers. There are a lot of young flat earthers. And these videos are getting a ton of traffic, not necessarily millions of views because millions of people agree with them, but for the same reasons that YouTube videos about Flat Earth were so successful, it's weird, it's scintillating, people want to laugh, people are interested, yeah. and it performs astonishingly well. So I think that is a huge danger of a you know a young influencer making this kind of videos, even as a joke. People are going to get into it, people are going to realize it's monetizable. Well, to this point, you know, people can, and maybe there are people listening who are, you know, hanging in with us so far, but are thinking or saying out loud as they scream back at us, why, why, why are you talking so much about this? If people want to delude themselves into what is a patently ridiculous idea, and they want to go to conferences and watch each other's videos, and, and they want to buy each other's merch, let them do it. It's, it's harmless. Um, but it's not harmless. And and I want to talk with you about that, both at the, the personal individual level, but then at the, the, the level of ideas. At the personal individual level, um, tell the story of Mike Hughes. Sure. So, you know, to take a step back here, a lot of flat earthers I've encountered have experienced loss from directly from conspiratorial thinking. Uh, 
flat earth is something that people reflexively laugh at. And when someone laughs at your beliefs, it hurts. People withdraw. They withdraw from families, friends, employers even. So there is this pervasive sense of victimhood of loss in the flat earth community. Now, some flat earthers have said, okay, you don't believe in flat earth. I'll prove it. And one of these characters was a man named Mike Hughes. He's someone who I spoke to quite a bit for this book until a certain point. Um, he, fascinating guy. He was a, a stunt man. He was an amateur rocketeer. He built these steam-powered rockets and he would, you know, blast them off incredible distances while riding in them and then deploy in a parachute. Really, really dangerous stuff, but he was, you know, he was a daredevil by trade. He was also a flat earther. Um or at the very least, was interested enough in the theory that he said he had to get proof one way or the other. He had this idea that he was going to build a rocket. He was going to launch himself high enough in the air that he could uh, deploy secondary weather balloons that would take him up high enough to take a picture of the Earth's curvature or lack thereof. That is just, I, I cannot articulate what a dangerous stunt that is, um, how that's never been done before in any capacity. Um and, you know, this is something we chatted about and, up, you know, I'd say this is very dangerous. You say, you know, this is what I'm doing. Nobody could talk him out of it. Um, February 2020, he was doing kind of a preliminary launch uh, for a show about going to space. This launch would not have taken him to space. It wouldn't have been the launch that proved or disproved Flat Earth, but it went wrong. Um his rocket hit something on the uh, on the launch, went but sideways. Uh, he he died on impact. It was pretty awful. Um, and it, it it was a rattling experience for me because I had for quite a while, you know, reported this with a little bit of a tongue in cheek attitude. Flat Earth is flat Earth is kind of funny. And realizing that this pursuit was so real for him that he was willing to do something that, you know, we both acknowledged it was very dangerous, but so dangerous that he did actually die. Mm -hmm. And that was a bit of a wake up. And then, you know, to see people immediately in the YouTube comments, because this was, this was like live streamed, the yeah. videos of it went up just immediately. People making jokes saying, ha ha, you know, you're a flat, flat earther now. I got quite aggravated um yeah. and i get that that's you know i had a personal connection to him we talked and texted a lot um but it was a moment where i found myself sort of uh sympathizing empathizing with flat earthers and right. that they are routinely mocked even in death and they're not mm -hmm. doing these things to be crazy they're doing them because they genuinely believe and those beliefs can just in this case be absolutely deadly what was fascinating was the the reaction. There, there were many reactions to this at the time, but one, as you mentioned, was people just who would mock flat earth beliefs anyway, but essentially mocking the death of someone, um, uh, whether in service of flat earthism or whether trying to investigate the truth. Uh, either way, you're 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 mocking a dead person. But the reaction from flat earthers was interesting because with the conspiratorial you know, frame of mind. Um, what did some of them say about Mike Hughes and why he died? So, I mean, some flat earthers said that Mike Hughes was a controlled op, that he wasn't a flat earther. 
And this is something that, you know, as a journalist, I think I had to very closely investigate. I had actually been talking to this guy for a couple of years and what he believed mattered to me. And what I found, I believe he was a flat earther. And I think this for a couple of reasons. Conspiracy theories, you very seldom believe in just one conspiracy theory. They go hand in hand. You have a whole worldview that is, you know, dependent on ideas of deceit. He was such a conspiracy theorist in other realms of his life that he briefly went to jail for it. He believed in a lot of sovereign citizen legal theory. He filed a whole bunch of bogus grievances. Police got in a, a police in a court got so annoyed that they had him arrested for a bit. Um, that's not the acts of someone who's just faking it. That's someone who ardently believes. He did other flat earth stunts that he didn't publicize. He went driving across the um, across the country with uh, measurement tools in his car to try and see if curvature and altitude changed at different places in the country. Um, so I, I genuinely do think that he was a flat earther. But, you know, one conclusion that I came to um, in the investigating of this is that, you know, flat earthers are in some ways they're, you know, we, we talked about how they're not scientific, but in other ways they're very scientific. They're very literal or they can be. He really believed in proving his theories by the evidence of his own eyes, conducting his own research as uh, certain conspiracy circles say. And that's what he was doing when he died. And so, Again, you know, we ask, did Samuel Rawbotham, the Flat Earth founder, actually believe in Flat Earth? Well, did Mike Hughes? Because in either case, it was absolutely formative to their lives and how they died. Mm -hmm. Something you mentioned in there, I think, speaks to the, the larger tragic dimension. So there's the individual tragic dimension of someone like Mike Hughes, true believer or not, who dies either for his beliefs or, or to investigate the belief. But the larger tragedy is, is what you mentioned, that he believed in many other conspiracy theories too. And what a lot of observers of conspiracism have noted is that one of the best predictors for conspiratorial belief is a prior belief in other conspiracy theories. That is, they, they build on one another and reinforce one another, even if they are logically incompatible, the thinking behind them tends to open one up to deeper and deeper and darker and darker holes. So for what we care about the most on this podcast, issues of, of national security, um, there are some conspiracy theories in the last few years that really do affect the, the security of Americans. Um, there's QAnon, there's some of the conspiracies around the 2020 election that led to January 6th. And people have died. People have taken guns into restaurants to, you know, and almost shot and killed people um, because of these kinds of beliefs. What did you find uh, outside of the example of Mike Hughes? What did you find about the intersection of flat earth thinking in general and some of these other conspiracies that have perhaps... Uh, a more dangerous element inherently to them than simply a belief in a flat earth would. This is one of the most interesting things I encountered in the researching and the writing of this book, because even though we mentioned at the beginning of this pod that conspiracy thinking has remained more or less a, a function of political activity for centuries and centuries, 
We are actually, though, I think in a moment where conspiracy theories are changing their role in politics. And so when I first started investigating Flat Earth 2017, 2018, I saw it as a theory that could sort of stand alone. Now, of course, if you believe in Flat Earth, you probably believe in other conspiracy theories. You're probably a 9-11 truther. But I didn't find too much overlap with things like QAnon, too much political content in it. In fact, I even went around asking people at uh, the first Flat Earth conference I went to, what do you think about QAnon? What are your politics? People were like, those guys, they're quite apolitical, actually. Over the course of a year and a half to two years, that shifted dramatically. Part of that is due to QAnon's huge explosion, uh, you know, in, in uh, I would say, at this point, mainstream Republican culture. Um, mm-hmm. So it was, I think, a natural, uh, <laughs> on a collision course with Flat Earth. But by the time I was wrapping this book, the Flat Earth pages that I had, you know, lurked on for years that had been quite narrowly focused, I think, talking about flat earth proofs, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. They were very um multi-purpose. They were talking about vaccine trutherism and QAnon and election denialism. And I really did see sort of a um a coalescence of a lot of theories. Mm-hmm. There's uh the journalist Anna Merlin has a really good term for this. She called it a the uh the conspiracy singularity. Something's going on right now. Mm-hmm. Conspiracy theories have hit the uh, the mainstream enough that they're really co-mingling in a way that I don't necessarily think they were five years ago. I'd be open for a debate about that. But um, I do generally think right now that Flat Earth is um, is overlapping quite a good deal with political conspiracy theories in a way that it didn't used to be. And I can see that just in the lives of people I started covering early on in this book who now have uh, have broadened their scope. <laughs> You'll yeah. talk talk about uh, one example. There's a mm-hmm. musician named Flat Earth Man, or, um, and he would you know make Flat Earth specific music. And you look at him now, and it's more uh, COVID denialism, that sort of thing. So um, mm-hmm. I think we're in a, in a very paranoid moment where one conspiracy theory, even something technically apolitical like Flat Earth, leads very naturally to something like QAnon, something like election denialism. Right. And anti-Semitism and fa- and even fascism. I mean, there's not a, you know, one-to-one relationship between any of these, but you, you've uncovered some of the links in individual cases. But again, some of the thinking that, you know, one, once you allow yourself to believe something that is, uh, if not maybe unprovable is the wrong word, but but something that is, you know, a real stretch it becomes easier to believe the next thing that's that's a real stretch and of course then we we have to talk about what are the solutions because you can try to have you know you can get the the smartest you know geologists and astrophysicists in the world to to sit down and talk to flat earthers but um i believe it's neil degrasse tyson who said you know he he just won't do that anymore because no facts will convince them and if it's a matter of belief you're, you're wasting your time. Um, literally just in terms of the time we have on the planet earth individually, he doesn't want to waste his time doing it, but it's a waste of people's time because it's not going to actually convince people because they won't abandon their beliefs over a few facts. Um, I like what you wrote about this in off the edge. You wrote in order to bring back believers from the edge, maybe we need to approach debunking less like a debate and more like holding a friend's hand as they leave a terrible dependent 
relationship. Um, that's a big investment. That's a hard thing to do when somebody is, you know, spouting off things about flat earth, maybe also QAnon, maybe also anti-Semitism, maybe also election denialism. Holding someone's hand in a case like that is really hard, but at least your research suggests and building on the research of sociologists and others that that is more likely to effect change than simply mocking them or trying to throw facts at them. Absolutely. And it's challenging. And I certainly can't claim to always uh, practice what I preach on this account. It's very difficult to deal with somebody who is um, spouting off something that's not true, often something that's harmful, that could be hateful, um, because there is, as you mentioned, a decent overlap with anti-Semitism and other hateful ideologies. But you know, to return to something you kicked at before, people don't believe in flat earth because it's the most logical explanation for the world. They believe in it for emotional reasons. And I think if we're ever going to bring people out of these beliefs, we have to address those emotional needs. Now, it's a two-way street. Those people need to want to cooperate with you, need to have some willingness to leave. You can't uh, chase them out with a stick. But the idea that, you know, arguing with them or mocking them is going to change their minds. It's not. It's going to drive them further in. They're going to feel further rejected. They're going to turn further in toward this theory to, uh, you know, to shore up their beliefs and their sense of self-worth, really. Um, you know, it's it's really hard to prescribe one way out of flat earth. I spoke in this book to a couple former flat earthers. The commonality they had was that, um, people were willing to welcome them back after what was frankly an embarrassing mistake. People didn't laugh at them too much and said, Hey, you know, this happens. They, um, they talked to globe earthers who were able to explain the theories and almost help explain why that person had been taken in saying that flat earthers just didn't really have your best interests at heart. You know, that, um, it, Yes, you felt emotionally satisfied by this theory, but maybe people were, you know, taking advantage of you a little bit. And again, that's a challenging uh, conversation to have. You know, anecdotally, I've heard some interesting stories about people's relatives leaving conspiracy theories um, in different ways that I think do speak to the emotional uh, underpinnings of it. Somebody said that their aunt was really into QAnon because she liked the idea that she was solving um solving mysteries and, you know, piecing clues together. And she got out of it when she got really into Wordle, just obsessively into Wordle and Wordle knockoffs. And that was, you know, doing the dopamine hit for her. Somebody else said that their relative liked um, QAnon because it was uh, a community. They all got together and talked. She got really into K-pop, which is an even more rabid community as far as I'm concerned. And uh, she found, you know, that sense of, um, you know, friendship and mutual interest there. Now, I, I can't actually prove either of those things happen, but, you know, anecdotally, I think it does sort of speak to maybe a more healthy replacement, a way of not just yanking someone out of a theory, but giving them something to fall back on. Right. Un unfortunately for a lot of people out there, the thing people are falling back on if they're not focusing on the details of flat earth is they're actually going into political extremism, right? Taking taking this form of extremist thinking and applying it to something else. And you've been following this in, in your reporting at the Daily Beast and in your uh, podcast with Will Sommer, uh, Fever Dreams, looking at this. Um, 
I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it does seem like you're not optimistic about the trend of political extremism and and the fact that there's 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 some pretty dark things going on that don't seem to be getting better given the current environment. And I'm wondering if you could kind of put a bow on that and explain from from your reporting, the conversations you've had on the podcast, um, just how concerned you are and what rays of hope we have that, in fact, things may not be going down in an endless spiral. Ooh, that's a pretty dark bow to put on things. Um, You know, I, I am concerned. I do think we're in an era where uh, polarization is... Uh, is a huge driving political force. Um, there is no incentive to step back and to moderate a little bit. And so I do think that um, one through line I see is that people will get involved in politics because they have a, uh, maybe a political belief or they have a conspiracy belief. And rather than just explore you know, those interests, just become active in a certain cause, they get yanked all the way to the end of a political spectrum yeah. um, where, you know, you might've gone in to your school board meeting because you wanted tax cuts. I don't know. And suddenly everybody's talking about yanking books off the shelves because, you know, it's going to indoctrinate the children to be gay, which is absolutely ridiculous stuff. Um, and that is where the discourse is. And that is where the gravity is. So uh, I, I wish you could say especially optimistic um, about a way out there. I can't say that I am. I do think that the uh, 2022 midterms were maybe a little uh, heartening in that uh, a lot of candidates who did run on these purely grievance-based issues, these uh, cultural issues, frankly, I want to say some of them just identity-based hate issues, that didn't seem to be too motivating. And it makes me a little bit hopeful that there is a, a, a maximum threshold of people who can be mobilized by that kind yeah. of rhetoric, a maximum number of people whose main political issue is keeping trans children out of sports. I like to think that most Americans are not like that. So that's my ray of optimism, but I am frankly appalled that there are so many people who do go to the polls for that reason. So that's where I am. We, we, we find what we can sometimes to hold on to hope and have some, some optimism, maybe optimism is the wrong word, but hope, because, Mm -hmm. you know, if you don't have any sense of hope, any sense of optimism that things can go well, then you lose the impetus for action and you just give up and that's not a solution. So I I hope you're right. I hope there, that, that, that there is a uh, maximum level there of people who are going to follow along with that. Um, This is the time that we reach into our chatterbox and pull out a question to put you on the spot. Kelly, if you could give one piece of advice to your 20-year-old self, what would it be? Huh. Um, Well, maybe an English literature degree wasn't the way to go, but, you know, (laughs) (laughs) you'll have a good time with it. No, um, uh, I'm going to take that back. I don't regret pursuing a writing career. It's taken me... Uh fascinating places and I've met really interesting people. Maybe not the most lucrative career, but uh, I'm going to defend it. And it's also given you perspective on things, right? I mean, you casually dropped in a while ago, you know, Cormac McCarthy's The Road. Um, I don't know that you read that for, for a class in particular, but having the perspective of how people have looked at these similar issues of the human condition across generations, across centuries, that 
that actually has a value, whether it's a a value that shows up in your salary and your paycheck may be a different matter, but you can commiserate with philosophy majors uh, about that. But it definitely informs your reporting that comes through that you have that that wider sense and uh, the facility with words. So as an objective observer, I would say it certainly was not a waste of your time. What would the alternative have been if you could go back to when you were in school? Was there another path you were interested in, like astronomy or political science or zoology? Well, I'll say that I did avert a crisis. I was uh, more narrowly thinking about becoming a music journalist. And if I'm lamenting lack of careers in uh, regular journalism, well, boy, howdy, let me tell you about the music uh, writing industry right now. Uh, If I would do anything else, you know, um, with all my uh, reporting, I have one through line I've come into again and again is um, sort of about how the degradation of physical community uh, affects, I think, so much more than we understand in in, um, in our politics, in our in our culture. I'm from a rural area. I live in one now. Um, and, you know, I, I am very interested in how you can build community outside of things like politics, which I think is right now a, a, where a lot mm-hmm. of people flock to for their yeah. sense of unity and um and friendship. And I don't think that's actually healthy. I I'm just fascinated in ways that you can, you know, build third spaces and, um, just alternate ways of making fellowship. And I'm not really sure what the job is in that, but I, uh, <laughs> I, I was out driving the other day. I passed a, a farm that had a community supported agriculture and I said, make this your third place. Your third place being the place outside of work or home that you congregate. And I said, that's yeah. really cool. I like yeah. that people are thinking about that. Absolutely. Kelly, it has been a, a pleasure, a bit disturbing at times, but a pleasure to talk with you about these issues. And I know we all look forward to seeing where you're reporting takes you next. Thanks for coming on Chatter. Thanks so much for having me. That was Chatter, a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at That Was Chatter. Chatter.